Chapter 4 of Tarzan and the Ant-Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois. Tarzan and the Ant-Men by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 4 Esteban Miranda, clinging tightly to the wrist of little Uha, crouched in the darkness of another forest twenty miles away, and trembled as the thunderous notes of another lion reverberated through the jungle. The girl felt the trembling of the body of the big man at her side and turned contemptuously upon him. "'You are not the river devil,' she cried. "'You are afraid. You are not even Tarzan, for Kamis, my father, has told me that Tarzan is afraid of nothing. Let me go that I may climb a tree.' Only a coward or a fool would stand here dead with terror, waiting for the lion to come and devour him. Let me go, I say. And she attempted to wrench her wrist free from his grasp. Shut up, he hissed. Do you want to attract the lion to us? But her words and struggles had aroused him from his paralysis, and stooping he seized her and lifted her until she could grasp the lower branches of the tree beneath which they stood. Then, as she clambered to safety, he swung himself easily to her side. Presently, higher up among the branches, he found a safer and more comfortable resting place, and there the two settled down to await the coming of the dawn, while below them Numa the lion prowled for a while, coughing and grunting, and occasionally voicing a deep roar that shook the jungle. When daylight came at last, the two, exhausted by a sleepless night, slipped to the ground. The girl would have delayed, hoping that the warriors of Obebe might overtake them, but the man harbored a fear rather than a hope of the same contingency, and was, therefore, for hastening on as rapidly as possible, that he might put the greatest possible distance between himself and the black cannibal chief. He was completely lost, having not the remotest idea of where he should search for a reasonably good trail to the coast, nor at present did he care, his one wish being to escape recapture by Obebe, and so he elected to move northward, keeping always an eye open for any indication of a well-marked trail toward the west. Eventually, he hoped, he might discover a village of friendly natives who would aid him upon his journey toward the coast, and so the two moved as rapidly as they could in a northerly direction, their way skirting the great thorn forest along the eastern edge of which they traveled. The sun beating down upon the hot corral of the first woman found it deserted of life. Only the corpse of a youth lay sprawled where it had fallen the previous evening. A speck appeared in the distant blue. It grew larger as it approached until it took upon itself the form of a bird gliding easily upon motionless wings. Nearer and nearer it came, now and again winging great slow circles, until at last it swung above the corral of the first woman. Once again it circled, and then dropped to earth within the enclosure. Ska, the vulture, had come. Within the hour the body of the youth was hidden by a mantle of the great birds. It was a two-days feast, and when they left only the clean-picked bones remained, and entangled about the neck of one of the birds was a golden chain, from which depended a diamond-encrusted locket. 
Ska fought the bobble that swung annoyingly beneath him when he flew, and impeded his progress when he walked upon the ground. But it was looped twice about his neck, and he was unable to dislodge it. And so he winged away across the great thorn forest, the bright gems gleaming and scintillating in the sun. Tarzan of the Apes, after eluding the women that had chased him and the Alalus youth into the forest, halted in the tree beneath which the frightened son of the first woman had come to a terrified pause. He was there, close above him, when Numa charged, and reaching quickly down had seized the youth by the hair and dragged him to safety as the lion's raking talons embraced the air beneath the feet of the Alalus. The following day the ape-man concerned himself seriously in the hunt for food, weapons, and apparel. Naked and unarmed as he was, it might have gone hard with him had he been other than Tarzan of the apes. And it had gone hard, too, with the Alalus, had it not been for the ape-man. Fruits and nuts Tarzan found, and bird's eggs, but he craved meat, and for meat he hunted assiduously, not alone because of the flesh of the kill, but for the skin and the gut and the tendons that he could use in the fabrication of the things he required for the safety and comfort of his primitive existence. As he searched for the spoor of his prey, he searched also for the proper woods, for a spear, and for bow and arrows, nor were they difficult to find in this forest of familiar trees, but the day was almost done before the gentle wind, up which he had been hunting, carried to his sensitive nostrils the scent spoor of Bara the deer. Swinging into a tree, he motioned the Alalus to follow him, but so inept and awkward was the creature that Tarzan was compelled to drag him to a place among the branches where, by signs, he attempted to impart to him the fact that he wished him to remain where he was, watching the materials that the ape-man had collected for his weapons, while the latter continued the hunt alone. That the youth understood him he was not at all sure, but at least he did not follow when Tarzan swung off silently through the branches of the forest, along the elusive trail of the ruminant, the scent of which was always translated to the foster son of Kala, the she-ape, as Bara the deer, though in fact, as practically always, the animal was an antelope. But strong are the impressions of childhood, and since that long-gone day, upon which he had pored over the colored alphabet primer, in the far-off cabin of his dead father, beside the landlocked harbor on the west coast, and learned that D stands for deer, and had admired the picture of the pretty animal, the thing that most closely resembled it, with which he was familiar in his daily life, the antelope, became for him then, and always remained, Bara the deer. To approach sufficiently close to Bara to bring him down with spear or arrow requires cunning and woodcraft far beyond the limited range of civilized man's ability. The native hunter loses more often than he wins in this game of wits and percipients. Tarzan, however, must excel them both, and the antelope too, in the keenness of his perspective faculties, and in the coordination of mind and muscles, if he were to lay Bara low with only the weapons with which nature had endowed him. As Tarzan sped silently through the jungle, guided by his nostrils in the direction of Bara the deer, increasing strength of the familiar effluvium apprised him that not far ahead Bara foregathered in numbers, and the mouth of the savage ape-man watered in anticipation of the feast that but awaited his coming. And, as the strength of the scent increased, more warily went the great beast, moving silently, a shadow among the shadows of the forest, 
until he came at last to the verge of an opening in which he saw a dozen antelope grazing. Squatting motionless upon a low-hanging limb, the ape-man watched the movements of the herd, against the moment that one might come close enough to the encircling trees to give a charge, at least a shadow of a chance for success. To wait patiently, oftentimes hour upon hour, for the quarry to expose itself to more certain death, is a part of the great game that the hunters of the wild must play. A single ill-timed or thoughtless movement may send the timorous prey scampering off into the far distance, from which they may not return for days. To avoid this, Tarzan remained in statuesque immobility, waiting for chance to send one of the antelope within striking distance. And while he waited, there came to his nostrils faintly the scent of Numa the lion. Tarzan scowled. He was downwind from Bara, and the lion was not between him and the antelope. It must, therefore, be upwind from the quarry, as well as from himself. But why had not the sensitive nostrils of the herbivora caught the scent of their arch-enemy before it had reached the ape-man? That they had not was evidenced by their placidity as they grazed contentedly, their tails switching, and occasionally a head raised to look about with up-pricked ears though with no symptom of the terror that would immediately follow the discovery of Numa in their vicinity. The ape-man concluded that one of those freaks of the air-currents that so often leaves a motionless pocket of air directly in the path of the flow had momentarily surrounded the antelope, insulating them, as it were, from their immediate surroundings. And while he was thinking these things and wishing that Numa would go away, he was shocked to hear a sudden crashing in the underbrush upon the opposite side of the clearing beyond the antelope, who were instantly upon the alert and poised for flight. Almost simultaneously there broke into view a young lion, which, upon coming in sight of the antelope, set up a terrific roaring as it charged. Tarzan could have torn his hair in rage and disappointment. The blundering stupidity of a young lion had robbed him of his meat. The ruminants were scattering in all directions. The lion, charging futilely, had lost his own meat and Tarzan's too. But wait! What was this? A terrified buck, blind to all save the single thought of escape from the talons of the dread carnivore, was bolting straight for the tree in which Tarzan sat. As it came beneath him a sleek brown body shot head foremost from the foliage, steel fingers gripped the throat of the buck, strong teeth fastened in its neck. The weight of the savage hunter carried the quarry to its knees, and before it could stumble to its feet again a quick wrench with those powerful hands had twisted and broken its neck. Without a backward glance, the ape-man threw the carcass to his shoulder and leaped into the nearest tree. He had no need to waste time in looking back to know what Numa would be doing, for he realized that he had leaped upon Bara full in the sight of the king of the beasts. Scarce had he drawn himself to safety ere the great cat crashed across the spot where he had stood. Numa, baffled, roared terribly as he returned to glare up at the ape-man perched above him. Tarzan smiled. "'Son of Dango the hyena,' he taunted, "'go hungry until you learn to hunt.' And casting a broken branch contemptuously in the lion's face, the ape-man vanished among the leafy branches, bearing his kill lightly across one broad shoulder. It was still daylight when Tarzan returned to where the Alalus was awaiting him. The youth had a small stone knife, and with this the ape-man hacked off a generous portion of the antelope for the whelp of the first woman, and another for himself.' Into the raw flesh hungrily sank the strong white teeth of the English lord, while the Alalus youth, gazing at him in surprise, 
sought materials for fire-making. Amused, Tarzan watched him until the other had succeeded in preparing his food as he thought it should be prepared. The outside burned to a cinder, the inside raw, yet it was cooked food and doubtless imparted to its partaker a feeling of great superiority over the low beasts that devoured their meat raw, just as though he had been a civilized epicure, eating decaying game and putrid cheeses at some fashionable club in London. Tarzan smiled as he thought how vague, after all, the line that separates primitive from civilized man in matters pertaining to their instincts and their appetites. Some of his French friends, with whom he was dining upon a certain occasion, were horrified when they learned that in common with many of the African tribes and the apes he ate caterpillars, and they voiced their horror between mouthfuls of the snails they were eating with relish at the time. The provincial American scoffs at the French for eating frogs' legs, while he munches upon the leg of a pig. The Esquimaux eat raw blubber. The Amazonians, both white and native, eat the contents of the stomachs of parrots and monkeys, and consider them delicacies. The Chinese coolie asks not how his meat came by its death, nor how long since. And there is a man in New York, an estimable and otherwise harmless man, who eats Limburger cheese on Bartlett pears. The following day, with sufficient meat to last them several days, Tarzan set to work upon weapons and his loincloth. Showing the Alalus how to scrape the antelope hide with his stone knife, the ape-man set to work, with nothing more in the way of tools than bits of stone picked from the bed of a stream, to fashion weapons with which to cope successfully with the Alali woman, great carnivores and whatever other enemies time might reveal to him. And as he worked, he watched the Alalis youth, and wondered of what use the poor creature could be to him in finding his way through the encircling thorn forest that he must pass to reach familiar country and the trail for home. That the poor thing was timid had been evidenced by its manner when fleeing from the Alali women, and its terror when confronted by Numa. Its speechlessness made it useless as a companion and it was entirely without woodcraft other than a certain crude, instinctive kind that was of no use to Tarzan. But it had placed itself at his side during the altercation in the corral, and although it could not have been any help to him, yet it had won a right to his consideration by its act. Moreover, it was evident, quite evident, that the creature had attached itself to Tarzan and intended to remain with him. An idea occurred to Tarzan as he worked upon his weapons and thought upon the Alalus. He would make similar weapons for the youth, and teach him how to use them. He had seen that the crude weapons of the Alali would be no match against one armed with a bow and arrows, or even a good spear. Accurately, they could not hope to throw their missiles as far as a good bowman could speed his shaft, and their bludgeons were helpless in the face of a well-thrown spear. Yes, he would make weapons for the youth and train him in their use, and then he could be made of service in the hunt and, if necessary, in the fight. And as Tarzan of the Apes thought upon the matter, the Alalus suddenly paused in his work and bent an ear close to the ground. Then he lifted his head and turned his eyes upon Tarzan, pointing at him, at his ear, and then at the ground. The ape-man understood that he was to listen as the other had, and when he did so, he distinctly heard approaching footsteps resounding upon a hard-worn trail. Gathering up his belongings, he carried them high among the trees to a safe cache, with the remnants of Barra the deer, and then, returning, helped the youth into the tree beside him. 
Slowly, already, the Alalus was becoming more at ease in the trees, and could help himself to a greater extent in climbing into them. But he was still practically helpless in Tarzan's estimation. The two had not long to wait before there swung down the trail one of the terrible women of the amphitheatre, and behind her, at ten or fifteen paces, another, and behind the second, a third. It was not often that they travelled thus, for theirs was a solitary existence, the Alali being almost devoid of gregarious instincts. Yet they did occasionally start out upon their hunts together, especially when they were hunting some dangerous beast that had encroached upon their rights, or when, failing to collect sufficient men from the forest during the mating season, the unfortunate ones banded together to make a raid upon the corrals of a neighboring tribe. The three, slouching along the trail, passed directly beneath the tree from which Tarzan and the youth watched them. The great flat ears flapped lazily. The dark eyes wandered from side to side, and from time to time they moved rapidly the skin upon some portions of their bodies as they sought to dislodge annoying insects. The two in the tree remained motionless, while the three brute women passed along down the trail, to be presently lost to their view at a turning of the forest highway. Then, after a short interval of listening, they descended to the ground and resumed their interrupted labors. The ape-man smiled as he idly pondered the events of the past few minutes. Tarzan of the apes, lord of the jungle, hiding among the trees to escape the notice of three women. But such women! He knew little about them, or their ways, as yet, but what he did know was sufficient to convince him that they were as formidable foes as ever he had encountered, and that while he remained weaponless he was no match against their great bludgeons and swift-thrown missiles. The days passed. The ape-man and his silent companion perfected the weapons that would more easily give them food, the latter working mechanically following the instructions of his master, until at last the time came when Tarzan and the Alalus were fully equipped, and then they hunted together, the man training the youth in the use of bow and spear, and the long grass rope that from boyhood had formed a unique feature of the ape-man's armament. During these days of hunting there came over the Alalus youth quite suddenly a great change. It had been his habit to glide stealthily through the forest, stopping often to look this way and that, fearful, apparently, of every creature that roamed the shadowy trails, his one great fear the ferocious females of his kind. But suddenly all this changed as by magic. Slowly he was mastering the bow and the spear. With deep interest and a sense of awe and respect he had watched Tarzan bring down many animals, great and small, for food, and once he had seen him dispatch Sabor the lioness with a single thrust of his great spear when Sabor had caught the ape-man in a clearing too far from the sanctuary of his beloved trees. And then his own day came. He and Tarzan were hunting, when the former disturbed a small herd of wild pigs, bringing down two with his arrows. The others scattered in all directions, and one of these, a boar, sighting the Alalus, charged him. The youth was of a mind to flee, for ages of inherited instinct prompted him to flight. Always the male Alalus fled from danger, and between fleeing from carnivorous animals and from their own women, they had become very swift, so swift that no dangerous enemy could overtake them. An Alalus man could be captured only by craft. He could have escaped the boar by flight, and for an instant he was upon the verge of flight. But a sudden thought checked him. Back flew his spear-hand as the ape-man had taught him, and then forward with all the weight of his body behind the cast. The boar was coming straight for him. 
the spear struck in front of the left shoulder and ranged downward through the heart. Horta the boar dropped in his tracks. A new expression came into the eyes and spread over the countenance of the Alalus. He no longer wore that hunted expression. He no longer slunk through the forest, casting fearful glances from side to side. Now he walked erect, boldly, and with fearless mien. And, perhaps, instead of dreading the appearance of a female, he rather courted the event. He was the personification of avenging manhood. Within him rankled countless ages of contemptuous treatment and abuse at the hands of his shees. Doubtless, he never thought of the matter in this way at all, but the fact remained, and Tarzan realized it, that the first woman unfortunate enough to stumble upon this youth was going to get the surprise of her life. And while Tarzan and the Alalis roamed the strange land hemmed in by the great thorn forest, and the ape-man sought for an avenue of escape, Esteban Miranda and little Uha, daughter of Camus the witch-doctor, wandered along the forest's outer verge in search of a trail toward the west and the coast. End of chapter 4 Recording by Matthew Reese, Cordova, Illinois.